0: Robert Kennedy was not intended to be a prominent and influential person in the national limelight. He lived most of his early life in the shadow of his older brothers. He was the runt of the Kennedy family and therefore was not going to be someone who came to national prominence. He was expected to succeed, but his older brothers were hand-selected to be the movers and shakers of the Kennedy family. But that is not the way that the plan worked out. And in the 50s and 60s, Robert Kennedy came to national prominence, moving and shaking the laws and policies of this American nation. Robert Kennedy, or as I will usually refer to him, Bobby Kennedy, was the seventh out of nine children that was born to Joseph and Rose Kennedy. Yes, nine children, big family. Incidentally, Bobby and his wife, Ethel, went on to have 11 children, 11 children in like the 18 years that they were married. That's crazy. Big families. The Kennedy's believed in big families. And yes, I know what you're thinking the Kennedys were very Catholic. Very Catholic. So it makes sense that this Catholic family in the 1950s had big families. But because he was a younger child and he was much smaller than some of his brothers, Bobby Kennedy was the runt, and he was not hand-selected by his father Joseph to be great. They were all expected to succeed. They spent many nights at the dinner table. In fact, Bobby Kennedy later in life said he doesn't remember a single night at the dinner table where they weren't discussing current event or politics or what Franklin Roosevelt was doing in office. But he wasn't hand-selected to be the successor to the Kennedy name. Joseph Kennedy was very successful, the father, the patriarch of the family. He was very successful. He was a businessman. He was very wealthy, quite rich, and he was involved in politics up until 1939 before World War II broke out. For a period of time, he was the ambassador to England. And so Bobby and his brothers lived in England for a time before high school. And Joseph Kennedy, not a great guy. I haven't done a ton of research on there. I do know he was sympathetic to the Nazis for a little while. And he didn't support them, of course, once war broke out. And we learned the awful things that they supported But he wasn't someone who was condemning Hitler in the early 30s, so that's not a great look for him. But he intended it for his kids, and especially his firstborn, Joseph Kennedy Jr., to be great. From the very beginning, when he had his son, he intended for his son Joe I'm going to call him Joe to differentiate from Joseph. So I don't have to keep saying Joseph Kennedy Jr. over and over again. He intended for Joe to be president of the United States. Now, we all know that the second son of Joseph became president. Jack, JFK. Very well known, obviously. So what happened to Joseph? Well, that's a really interesting story. And this episode kind of goes into these things related to Bobby Kennedy. I found some things that were just interesting. And so there's a little bit of tangents, but I thought that was okay because this is the Curiosity Chronicles, and I like to talk about things that are interesting, even if they are slightly off topic. So I want to talk a little bit, just for fun, although it's kind of tragic, about Joseph Kennedy Jr. and Operation Aphrodite. Operation Aphrodite was a top-secret program that was undertaken by the United States Armed Forces towards the end of World War II. At this time, the United States had gained superiority, for the most part, in the air over the Luftwaffe, but they were having trouble with precision bombing. At this point, there's no such thing as laser-guided bombs, smart missiles, none of that stuff. And they were having trouble hitting targets with precision. Everybody was. But if they could hit targets with precision, they could really take down the Germans' ability to make war if they took out factories and plants and armories and things that needed to be taken out to limit Germany's ability to wage war. And they were also sick and tired, of course, this long into the war of losing airmen on bombing runs to fighters or anti aircraft. It is always a tragedy to lose men in war, but it becomes more of a tragedy, arguably, to lose men towards the end of a war that it seems you are going to win. So the United States tried to come up with a way to A, not have their airmen getting killed, and B, to precision bomb German targets. And what they came up with was Operation Aphrodite. The plan was to take a bunch of war-weary and older B-17 or B-24 bombers. They were going to pack these bombers with as much explosives as they could hold. And then they were going to have a pilot and a co-pilot take off engage a type of radio control that would be controlled from a trailing plane. And then the pilot and co-pilot would bail out over England and they would remote control fly this bomber packed with explosives until they got to the target. And then they would fly the plane directly into the target instead of dropping explosives. They just flew the plane right into the target and let the explosives do their work. Pretty good idea moderate success, hit or miss success. Let's put it that way. I mean, this is 1944. It's not like radio control was as good as it is now, but that's what they were going to try to do. And Joe Kennedy, the junior, was a Navy airman. And he was part of Operation Aphrodite. So on April 12, 1944, Joe Kennedy and his flight engineer, Wilford J. willie which is a terrible name. If your last name is Willie, why would you name your kid Wilford? But anyway, they boarded a PB4Y-1, which is the Navy's version of the B-24J. and It was loaded with 21,170 pounds of Torpex, Torpex is an explosive originally designed for torpedoes. It's 50% more powerful than TNT. There's a lot of explosive power. Can't talk. There's a lot of explosive power on one airplane. So Joe Kennedy and Wilford take off in their plane. The plan was, of course, like every other mission in Operation Aphrodite, arm the explosives, bail out, live to fight another day. As they were getting ready to bail out, Wilford turned on a primitive TV camera in the nose that was to help guide the remote control operator, and Kennedy armed the explosives. And at 6.20 p.m. before either men had bailed out, the plane, for reasons yet unexplained, exploded in a massive fireball. Neither men obviously survived. In fact, their bodies were never recovered. There may not have been bodies left, to be blunt. Huge explosion, and they were killed immediately. Nobody knows why, for sure, it exploded. Obviously, it was a tragic accident. More than likely, what happened was when Wilford turned on the television camera, it was not shielded properly against electron, electromagnetic emissions and the electron, ele- electromagnetic, sheesh, I'm just fumbling today. The electromagnetic emissions uh, opened a relay solenoid. Not actually sure what that is. But because that was opened, it activated the detonator, which then detonated the explosives prematurely. It's never been proven, but that's the most likely cause. And so Joe Kennedy, tragically, was killed in combat in a secret mission and was never able to fulfill the destiny that his father had set out for him. The mantle of the Kennedy family was passed on to Jack. Now back to Bobby. Bobby Kennedy graduated from law school in 1951, and he immediately entered into politics. But his role early on in politics was to help his brother be the success that his father envisioned. And so Bobby was the manager of the first political campaign of JFK. It was the Senate run in 1952 and Bobby Kennedy ran a successful campaign. JFK was elected to the Senate and Bobby was able to move on to his own thing. And, Briefly, after managing JFK's campaign, Bobby served on the staff for the Senate Subcommittee on Investigations. This was a Senate Subcommittee that was chaired by Joseph McCarthy. Now, if you've heard of Joseph McCarthy or the Red Scare or McCarthyism, you might know that Joseph McCarthy was cuckoo. I'm not sure if Joseph McCarthy actually was as paranoid as he came off to be about communism, or if he used communism as a way to get in front of cameras and become famous. But regardless, the guy was nuts. He went on a witch hunt for communists in American politics or places of power in America. He said in a speech in the early 50s that he knew of 200 card-carrying communists. Not sure if they actually have cards. That's what he said who were in high levels of American government or high levels of American power. And he went after them with his senatorial power. He started these investigations based on very flimsy evidence and very ethically shaky investigations, to say the least. There were spying and wiretaps and warrants that were gotten based on that flimsy evidence. The guy was crazy. And Bobby was not a fan and resigned after six months. And it became clear after a while that Joseph Joseph McCarthy was chasing... It was a wild goose chase. But America was in the middle of the Cold War. They were freaked out by communism and, and a lot of people sided with him until it became apparent that he was out of his mind. Robert Kennedy figured that out a lot earlier so he resigned from the position but he still served within the senate he served as the chief counsel or the the chief lawyer to the senate rackets committee and he was investigating corruption in trade unions and this is when bobby kennedy came to more national prominence because he went after jimmy hoffa Jimmy Hoffa was the leader of the union called the Teamsters. He had, it's a truck driver union called the Teamsters. Very powerful. And Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa hated each other. And excuse my language as I I go forward here a little bit. Bobby Kennedy liked to bring... Jimmy Hoffa in for questioning where Jimmy Hoffa would push his buttons and kind of just joke around and kind of like you would expect to see someone on the witness stand in a mobster movie you know they know they can't be touched he used to say that he just quote loved to bug that little bastard sounds like a great guy (laughs) I mean that sarcastically Jimmy Hoffa was no joke, however. It was believed, and it's pretty probable, that Jimmy Hoffa advanced his own career, but also the causes of his union, with ties to organized crime. Never a good thing to have ties to. Especially for Jimmy, you'll find out later. (laughs) But he was head of the union, and many of the local chapter heads within the Teamsters during his time were actively and fairly openly partnered with the Mafia. They were involved in extortion, embezzlement, racketeering, and Hoffa himself had relationships and connections with high-ranking mobsters. Not necessarily anything that could be proved as him doing anything wrong, but if you're friends with mobsters you're on pretty shaky legal ground, more than likely. And the Justice Department wanted this guy bad. They investigated him and indicted him repeatedly, and nothing would stick. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but eventually, the Justice Department, which, as of 1964, was headed by Bobby Kennedy as Attorney General, they were finally able to convict Jimmy Hoffa of something And that was jury tampering and bribery. And he was sentenced to, I believe it was about 13 years in prison. It's it's so fascinating to me. his, His sentence was commuted by Nixon. And immediately, he went about trying to regain control of the Teamsters. And this is like a movie. They've actually made movies about this. Jimmy Hoffa, 1975. He was in Detroit, that's where he's from, actually, Detroit, interesting enough. He was going to go to a dinner meeting with a local crime figure who had connections to the mob. And supposedly, he was going to meet with this guy for the settling of a feud. It doesn't get any more mobster than this. The guy never showed up, apparently. Jimmy Hoffa was the only one that showed up. And then he was gone. He just disappeared. And he's never been found. His car was found in the restaurant parking lot, and nobody has seen him alive since, except I would assume the person that murdered him. But, like, it's so crazy. It's real life, it seems like a movie. Guy just disappeared, nowhere, gone, poof. He was legally declared dead in 1982. He's one of the most famous disappearances of all time, and he's never been found. It's 2021. Nobody still knows where Jimmy Hoffa is. If you find him, you'll probably become very famous. That'd be very gross. Regardless of all of that, just, I just, that's such a great story. I wish I could do a podcast on it, but it'd be like a four minute podcast. Jimmy Hoffa was born this year. He became a head of the Teamsters and then he disappeared in 1975 and nobody knows what happened. The end. Anyway, Bobby Kennedy considered his conviction in 1964 of Jimmy Hoffa as one of his greatest achievements. But that was what he was doing in the Senate up until about 1960 when he finally got back into his brother's shadow. (laughs) Poor guy. And became JFK's, again, campaign manager, but this time for the presidency. 1960, Bobby Kennedy once again runs a successful campaign for his brother, JFK is elected to the presidency of the United States, and he appoints Bobby Kennedy to be attorney general of the United States, attorney general, of course, being the head of the Justice Department. And there's a lot of things that I could talk about during the presidency of JFK that include Bobby Kennedy, because he wasn't just the attorney general. He was also the closest advisor to JFK. But I'm probably going to skip most of it uh, just because, A, one of the things that Bobby Kennedy was well known for as Attorney General was advancing civil rights. And I talked at nauseum about that in my last episode. And I don't want to rehash any of that here. Well, I hope you weren't nauseated. I hope it was enjoyable. But I don't need to rehash it. And also, he was the advisor in a lot of foreign policy issues. But a lot of those things I honestly could envision doing a podcast about at a later date, things like the Bay of Pigs or the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I don't really want to get into that now, and it's not really important. Uh, But as Attorney General, uh, we already talked about, he was committed to fighting organized crime, and his convictions, or I should say, convictions of the Justice Department against organized crime figures rose by 800% during his time as attorney general. And he was apparently very successful and very committed to going against organized crime. Incidentally enough, this led to future pain and suffering for him because for a period of time, he was quite convinced that the assassination of JFK was retribution for his harsh tactics as attorney general and going after crime figures. It's a conspiracy theory that has no basis, but he was afraid that his ruthlessness as attorney general, he was ruthless. People called him Ruthless Robert. They were He was afraid that his ruthlessness was directly responsible for the assassination of Kennedy. It's not true, but still, as his brother, you can imagine how he still felt guilty. So that was Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. He went after organized crime, and he tried to advance civil rights. And after JFK was assassinated... He became the natural successor to the Kennedy throne, although it wasn't something that he jumped on board with right away. He did stay on as attorney general through 1964 up until around sometime in 1964, despite the fact that him and Lyndon Baines Johnson, the new president, hated each other, which I mentioned in an earlier podcast. They hated each other, but he stayed on, as did most of JFK's cabinet, until 1964, he resigned and he decided that he wanted to run for the senate. Now Bobby was devastated by JFK's death, who wasn't He's your brother. And he was he was racked by this intense emotional and sometimes even physical pain, but he also had survivor's guilt. You have to keep in mind that there was a public perception of the Kennedy brothers. Bobby was not very well liked. He had to remake his image later on. He was ruthless. He went after people he was not super likable, and he was the one that was viewed as a jerk, whereas Jack was viewed in the perception of the public as the likable, charismatic, head of Camelot, who could possibly have a problem with Jack Kennedy kind of guy, which may or may not be the true Nature of Jack Kennedy, but it was what the public perceived. So, Robert Kennedy had survivor's guilt. If someone was going to shoot one of the Kennedy brothers and had a vendetta against one of the Kennedy brothers, how could it possibly not have been the ruthless jerk Bobby? Why did they have to kill Jack Kennedy? That's what was going through his brain. But he eventually worked through it. It was a weird process. He was very withdrawn. He took to wearing one of Jack Kennedy's coats, which is kind of weird, especially when you think that he was much smaller than his older brother. And the co- quote, the coat was way too big for him. It just doesn't seem like a healthy healing process, but it is what it is. He managed to get through it. Decided in 64 that he wanted to run for Senate, wanted to run for, for Senate. ...for the state of New York, which is kind of strange. He was accused of being a carpetbagger. A carpetbagger is a political candidate who is running for office... ...in an area of the country where they have no local connections. But despite the accusations, and despite not having many local connections in New York... ...he did win by roughly 700,000 votes. And in the Senate, he became part of the program to try to help the powerless... Keep in mind, as I talked about in the LBJ episode, this was the time of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. And Kennedy was on board with that. He wanted to help with programs that were designed to help the powerless the children, the poor, racial minorities, Native Americans, those that don't seem to have a voice for themselves. Bobby Kennedy wanted to help them. Interestingly enough, in his time in the Senate, Bobby Kennedy never voted against any of the appropriation bills that funded the Vietnam War. And he never, in his entire career in the Senate, advocated for a unilateral withdrawal of American troops. He, in public speeches, his policy on the Vietnam War was continuing the combat, stopping some of the more controversial parts of combat, like bombing of certain areas, And to try to have a negotiated settlement for a peace process. That is not any different, except maybe in the way that he termed it, from Johnson and Nixon's platform on the war. It's very similar. Maybe it's not exactly the same, but it's not that much different. And yet... In his time in the Senate, and then especially going into 1967, 1968, when Johnson was being maligned throughout the country, Bobby Kennedy somehow became an anti-war poster boy. He was not as anti-war as people think he was, but yet somehow he got a coalition and people saw him as the presidential candidate that was going to end the war, or at least they hoped he was going to become the presidential candidate at the end of the war. Keep in mind, up until mid-1968, he did not announce that he was going to run for president. He did that later, but people wanted him to, and they wanted him to do it based on ending the war. And I do want to talk a little bit about the anti-war movement in the early 60s and into 1968, because it does play into the life of Bobby Kennedy. Early 1960s, majority of the United States supported the United States role in Vietnam. Keep in mind, the United States did not actually enter into true combat in Vietnam until 1965. But even up until 1965, people supported it. It was widely popular. And there was a small, liberal, but very vocal minority that was kind of the start of the anti-war movement. And it started mainly on college campuses, to be honest. In fact, it started right here at the University of Michigan. The Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, in 64 and 65, organized what they called teach-ins to show their opposition to how the war was being conducted. Teach-ins were days when classes were canceled, Special anti-war seminars were given from different professors. There were rallies and there were speeches. And like I said, the first one was at the University of Michigan and it kind of spread from there. So students, there were prominent artists and intellectuals. And then, of course, the hippies in the counterculture movement was very anti-war. But it wasn't until closer to 1967 that the anti-war movement really started to take off. Now, I honestly thought that I would be able to find a lot more information. I thought this would be more similar to the civil rights episode where there would just be like event after event after event that was anti-war, but it wasn't really the case. Unfortunately, I've already talked about one of the major events in the anti-war movement at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, so I'll hit that a little bit more again, but... There are some events that I can't talk about. I just wish I had a little bit more detail. I looked. Just was hard to find really in-depth detail. But 1967, support for the war was quickly dwindling. And October 21, 1967 is when one of the larger anti-war protests occurred. And it occurred around Washington, D.C. It was the Lincoln Memorial is where it started. And about 100,000 anti-war protesters staged a protest. And there were speeches around the Lincoln Memorial, different organizations and different men and women gave speeches condemning the war. And then after the protest at the Lincoln Memorial, about 50,000 of these protesters marched on the Pentagon. They were going to, quote unquote, lay siege to the Pentagon. Now, interestingly enough, if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, this protest is in that movie. Is is the part of the movie where Forrest Gump gives a speech, but the microphones aren't on? It's like the best part of the movie. They're not important, but I just thought this interesting. It's my favorite movie. But also, <laughs> this part this is pretty hilarious to me. The anti war movement, I it, you know it's it was maybe a good thing. Wars not good. Wars of course terrible. And no matter which side of the spectrum you fall on, you know, nobody wants to see people getting killed if you can stop it. But the anti-war movement of the 1960s just cracks me All These hippies. had some weird stuff that they believed. They were taking lots of drugs, man. And I'm not sure they were totally realistic about their goals with the war. And I'll give you a, a good example. They marched down the Pentagon. That's not a big huge thing the reason they marched on the pentagon one of the reasons they marched on the pentagon is some of the leaders of this protest were jerry rubin and more famously abby hoffman abby abbott hoffman is a guy again forrest gump he's the guy wearing the american flag shirt with the really shaggy hair and the bandana he swears dude was woo, he was out there crazy cuckoo pants He's pretty famous as the leader of the Youth International Party, the Yippies. And the reason they marched on the Pentagon. I can't even say this with a straight face. I'm trying to be all like educational and intellectual. Just tell you the events. I can't do it. And I'm trying not to let my own personal feelings get into this podcast. But this is just ridiculous. Okay, excuse me while I compose myself. (laughs) Abby Hoffman told some of his compatriots that maybe they should approach the anti-war demonstration from a religious aspect because the five-sided symbol, the Pentagon, was often seen in many religions as an evil symbol. (laughs) So they said maybe if they could get enough people (laughs) to surround the Pentagon, (laughs) they could quote-unquote Exorcise the demons or the evil spirits from the Pentagon and win or end the Vietnam War. But beyond that, beyond that craziness, Abby Hoffman had decided that during this exorcism of the Pentagon, (laughs) I can't even say, I can't get through this. He was going to use psychic energy... To levitate the Pentagon, this massive office building, he was going to use psychic, new agey energy to levitate the Pentagon, cause it to vibrate until it turned orange, so I'm not making this up. And once that happened, the Vietnam War would immediately end. <laughs> now, there is some reason to believe that Abby Hoffman was a bit theatrical, and this was all just showmanship. Or he might have been super high on LSD for like 10 years, and it messed up his brain. Who can tell? But that is what they did. They went to the Pentagon with the intention to perform an exorcism of an office building. (laughs) There were some clashes with uh, military police at the Pentagon. This was part of the flower power movement, you might see there's a somewhat famous picture of a shaggy haired college student putting uh, flower petals in the barrel of the MP's guns. It's kind of, I've seen it before. It's not super famous, but the flower power, you know, peace, love, and happiness, all that good stuff and drugs. But still there were some clashes that got a little bit violent, like 600 people were arrested. And one of them was actually Norman Mailer. He's a author and he wrote a non-fiction novel like it's 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 non-fiction but it's kind of a narrative um book and it actually won the pulitzer prize later on but that's just a fun little fun fact and uh another fun fact that's maybe less fun abby hoffman uh, died in 1989 died of a drug overdose didn't see that one coming did you I shouldn't joke about someone dying, but come on. (laughs) So that was what was going on in 1967. Also in 1967 was the year that Martin Luther King Jr. publicly spoke out against the war in Vietnam. And that was a big boost to the anti-war movement because it tied it to civil rights. So it was an anti-war movement that had become part of a much larger movement to end the war in Vietnam. And as a civil rights movement, it made sense because a lot of college students were exempt from the draft. And so a lot of the people getting drafted were black, Hispanic, lower socioeconomic, lower down the socioeconomic ladder. And so the people, of course, being killed in Vietnam were much more likely to be minorities or African-American. So they tied it together with the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And then 1968 rolled around, and the Tet Offensive happened, and as we've discussed, the anti-war movement got much more popular within the American public. In 1968 was when there was a group called the Vietnam Veterans Against the War. They joined the anti-war movement, and these men were combat veterans. Many of them were in wheelchairs or crutches, and they were on television television they were throwing away the medals that they won in the service in Vietnam. It's a very powerful message and it won over a lot of people throughout the American public to the anti-war side of things, especially given what was happening during the Tet Offensive. So in 1968, as we've discussed previously, Lyndon Johnson was very unpopular and Eugene McCarthy who, interestingly enough, Eugene McCarthy is the true anti-war candidate in 1968. Not Bobby Kennedy. Eugene McCarthy was the anti-war who should have been the poster boy. College students were the ones that were supporting Eugene McCarthy, and college students were the breeding ground for the anti-war movement. And he announced that he was going to challenge Johnson for the Democratic primary. And Bobby Kennedy, still, at this point, not interested in running for president, so he says. But then Eugene McCarthy did very well in the New New Hampshire primary. And at that point, Bobby Kennedy decided to announce his candidacy as well. And then, like I've discussed, Johnson withdrew, and it was between Hubert Humphrey, Eugene McCarthy, and Bobby Kennedy. Now, Bobby Kennedy was not popular with the college student anti-war movement, but he had managed to form a coalition of working class black and white voters. He had both sides of the racial spectrum. And he was seen as a candidate who could end the war, but also a candidate who had a strong civil rights record and could bring about unity. And that's what it came down to. He was becoming more and more popular and getting more and more votes in the primaries because he was seen as a way to bring fractured politics in the United States back to a unified front, end the turmoil, end the tumult, and bring about unity. But unfortunately, 1968 was not done kicking the American people when they were down. So in 1968, Robert Kennedy had, so far, for quite some time, avoided the question of running for president. In 1967, he had gone on record saying that he would not challenge Lyndon Johnson for the nomination for the Democratic Party. And we've discussed this in a previous podcast, but so I'll just brush over it uh, for those who are new listeners or for people who forgot. Eugene McCarthy announced that he was going to run, and he did very well in a primary in New Hampshire. And so on March 16, 1968, Robert Kennedy also announced that he was going to challenge the president, Lyndon Johnson, for the Democratic nomination. And then, of course, we know that Lyndon Johnson decided not to run at all, and so it came down to Eugene McCarthy... Bobby Kennedy, and Hubert Humphrey. And Kennedy had some success going forward. He won primaries in Indiana, South Dakota, Washington, D.C. as well. But it was going to come down to California. June 4, 1968 was the day of the California Democratic primary. And it was thought that whoever won the Democratic primary in California was going to be the candidate who was selected at the convention to be the Democratic candidate for president. And so on June 4, Bobby was in California, and it turns out that he actually won the primary, which was very good news for him and his supporters. It was a basic victory in the primary in, or in the in the campaign in general it was now seen that bobby kennedy would probably challenge richard nixon for the presidency and so early morning on june 5 shortly after midnight bobby kennedy gave a speech to his supporters mayor mayor yordi has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already <laughs> So uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Thank you very much. This speech was occurring at the Ambassador Hotel in California, and you can tell by the audio, the crowd was very supportive of Bobby Kennedy. Of course, that's kind of the point of having a victory speech in front of your supporters. But there was excitement. There was a feeling of hope that surrounded Bobby Kennedy. And when he refers to going to Chicago, that is the... Location of the Democratic nominating convention. So he is saying, let's go win the nomination and then win the presidency. But unfortunately for Bobby Kennedy, he never made it to Chicago. In fact, he never made it out of the Ambassador Hotel. After the speech, he left the podium and started going a back way through the kitchens, if I remember correctly. And a reporter named Andy West was attempting to get an exclusive interview with Bobby Kennedy. But instead, he got this. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? possible? It's possible, ladies and gentlemen. It is possible. He has not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my god. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Raper Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Rafer. Get it. Get the gun raper okay now hold on to the guy hold on to him hold on to him ladies and gentlemen hold him hold him we don't want another Oswald
1: hold him raper we don't want
0: another Oswald hold him raper keep people away from him keep people away from him as you can tell and as would be expected, the feelings of victory and jubilation quickly turned to pandemonium robert kennedy was shot 3 times at close range as well as 5 other people that were wounded around him nobody else was killed and bobby kennedy wasn't killed instantly he actually lingered for about a full day he was shot shortly before 1 p- 1 am excuse me 1 am on june 5 he ended up dying at 44 a.m. on June 6th. He was just 42 years old. And the person that shot him was actually a supporter of Bobby Kennedy for a while. And you you hear the reporter in the audio clip talking about, we don't want another Oswald. He's telling Rafer Johnson to hold him. Rafer Johnson was a... Friend of Bobby Kennedy, a supporter of Bobby Kennedy. He was also a Olympic decathlete. He had won the gold medal in the decathlon in 1960. He was pretty famous. And he was the first person to subdue the gunman and get the gun, but many others joined in to help out. And the reporter is saying, we don't want another Oswald. We don't want another Oswald. Of course, Oswald was shot while in police custody, he never brought to trial, leading to a lot of uncertainty. So they don't want another Oswald. They want to be able to arrest this guy, take him in, and try him in a court of law. The gunman was only 24 years old. Oddly enough, same age that Oswald was when he shot JFK. Kind of an odd coincidence. Guy's name was Sirhan Sirhan. That is a real name. Sirhan Bashira Sirhan. He was a Palestinian immigrant. He was a supporter of Bobby Kennedy for a while. But Bobby Kennedy, during his campaign, and this is so crazy to me, you would think that if Bobby Kennedy was going to get shot, it would be by the mob or it would be by a communist or by a civil rights or anti-civil rights racist. But he was shot by a Palestinian immigrant that was born in Jerusalem in 1944. And I haven't even talked about it because it's such a, what in my mind is a minor thing that of course ends up being the cause of his death, but Bobby Kennedy supported Israel. Israel had become a country in 1948, and of course there was all the tension with Israel and the Palestinian slash Arab nations around them. And exactly one year before Bobby Kennedy was shot, so on June 5, 1967, there was the start of the 6-day war which was Israel versus Egypt and some other Arab nations Egypt Jordan and Syria I believe and while campaigning Bobby Kennedy had thrown his support behind Israel and he said in a speech in Oregon that if he had won the election or if he did win the election to be president he was going to give 50 fighter jets to Israel and Sirhan Sirhan being a Palestinian, felt that Bobby Kennedy had personally betrayed him by turning his back on the Palestinians and that he had personally betrayed the Palestinians by supporting Israel. And he became, instead of a supporter, he became obsessively fixated on Bobby Kennedy. And when he was arrested, he confessed to the crime although he said from the beginning that he actually had no memory of actually doing it, which is odd, to say the least. But during the trial, there were documents found in his apartment or his home, diaries or manifestos, and one of them had a quote. And it says, quote, My determination to eliminate RFK is becoming the more and more of an unshakable obsession. Kennedy must die before June 5th, June 5th being the one-year anniversary of the Six-Day War. So it seems fairly likely that Sirhan Sirhan, being mentally unstable, as well as having a vendetta based on his Palestinian heritage, it seems likely that he was the gunman, and he was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. However, California outlawed or banned the death penalty in the early 70s, and so it was commuted to life in prison. He's still in prison now, still alive. I did see in some of my articles he's recently been stabbed. <laughs> I guess that happens in prison, you know. He got shivved, got shanked. Anyway, he recovered. And he's still alive. There are many conspiracy theories surrounding Bobby Kennedy. That makes sense. A Political assassination is always going to breed conspiracy theories. I won't dive into it, but I will say that the little bit that I did look into made me think that it could be a possible follow-up podcast because there were some interesting things that I read that maybe, maybe, maybe there was a conspiracy. Who knows? but the evidence is pretty compelling to suggest that Sirhan Sirhan was the guy that killed Bobby Kennedy. But yeah, I mean, it'd be fun to look into. You can look into it yourself if you want to. But that was the reasoning behind the death of Bobby Kennedy. It just seems so needless. All death is. But Martin Luther King, you know, he died fighting for something he believed in strongly. It was his life. Bobby Kennedy was killed because of a policy position that nearly every American president has taken, almost every politician has taken in the United States. The United States supports Israel. That is the position of the United States. It's just, that's tragic. It doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on. It doesn't matter if you agree with him politically or not. This was a man whose wife was pregnant with his 11th child, and she watched him get shot right in front of him. His son never met him. It's it's tragedy, and it's just so needless, but the tragedy is compounded because of what it did to the United States. Keep in mind that the United States had not even recovered from Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. It had been barely two months since King was assassinated, and now there was another assassination of a very popular and very famous political figure, not to mention the fact that it was a Kennedy. So you get all the grief and pain brought up by another Kennedy getting assassinated in this violent way in public. And as I've said, Kennedy was viewed as a hopeful candidate For the United States, there was hope that he would end the war, bring our soldiers home, there would be no more killing. There was hope that he would bring about more change within the civil rights, bridge the racial divide within the United States. There was hope that he would bring about economic prosperity for more people. And there was just hope that he would end the fractured nature of. Of politics in the United States, bring about bipartisanship, bring about a unified country that could look forward to the 1970s with new hope and new optimism, and that all came crashing down devastatingly with his assassination. This was 1968. They had been through multiple crises already, and there were many more to come. And with the death of Bobby Kennedy, the innocence of the United States was forever demolished. There was this thought throughout the country that violence had become a permanent and toxic part of United States culture, like it was a virus that wouldn't go away. And it seemed that any good change that was coming about In the United States was being blocked by insane individuals with a gun. And there was this belief within the United States that normal routes were not going to get change done. Violence was the only way to bring about whatever policy you wanted. And... Instead of the mindset of the early 60s where the United States was still very hopeful, very optimistic, very, I don't even know the word, very hopeful for the future, 1968, with all the death and violence, had turned the United States public into a cynical and bitter people. There was no optimism in the United States anymore. And that's a dangerous place for a society to be. And there was this feeling of what if. What if Bobby Kennedy had been elected president? So going forward, more crises pop up in the Vietnam War or Watergate, all these things that happened in the late 60s and early 70s. And there was always this thought of what if. What if Bobby hadn't been assassinated? What if Bobby had become president? And they were, it was sickening. And people felt like United States and the American society was just coming apart at the seams. And everything was crashing down. And that, once again, is the legacy of 1968. The innocence and the hopefulness of post-war America was irrevocably and finally demolished in the year 1968. And it never fully recovered to the level of optimism and hope that the United States achieved after we had won World War II. The year of tumult was exactly that. It was a year that kicked the American people Knocked him down and just kept on kicking and kicking and kicking. Until America was bruised, bloodied, beaten, burned down, and devastated. And it's a tragic year in American history. So that's it. That is the end of the year of tumult, according to this podcast. I know I only only made it to June of 1968. there were so many different things I could have done within this year but I felt a little burned out to be honest. I, I didn't want to keep hammering away at one specific series for too long and, and burn out and burn out my listeners. So I decided to move on. There's a lot more to look into. I'd encourage you to check out documentaries or read up on the year. but uh, I'm moving on. I'm excited with how this started. I want to thank everybody who did listen to this first series. I know there was some uh, growing pains, things that I want to change, things that I want to do better, and just learn in the process of all this. Please hit me up on social media, join my Facebook page, my Instagram page, subscribe to my podcast on whatever site you use, and communicate. I'd love to hear from you if you have anything that you want to hear more of, things you want me to do differently. Topics that you would like to hear about, I'm open. I would love to hear from you. But I appreciate all the listeners that came in and helped me get this thing started. And I hope you spread the word and bring more people in. I'm really excited for the direction of this podcast. And I think I'm hitting my stride, really going to be able to bring you some good stuff. But that's the end of the year of tumult for the purposes of the Curiosity Chronicles. Check back soon. There will be episodes released on the space race. So, next episode. Project Mercury First Americans in Space. I'm really excited about it. Space Race one of my favorite things. So that's what's coming to you next. But for now, this is the Curiosity Chronicles signing off. I'm Brett Biles, your host, and I hope you stay curious.